Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. It has a big tent, altars, sacrifices, and lots of ceremonies. I'm talking about the Old Testament sanctuary in the desert that God instructed his people to build after they left Egypt. What was it for? What purpose did it serve? More importantly, what can it teach us today? Dr. Jennings is here via Skype to enlighten us. Dr. Jennings, the time is yours. Let's start with some principles of understanding first. Mm -hmm. In scripture, or in fact, in reality, metaphors, parables, illustrations, object lessons, rituals, similes, they are only metaphorical as long as they are directly connected to some reality that they're trying to help us understand. Mm -hmm. If the parable, illustration, metaphor, object lesson is not connected to reality, then it is no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. Mm -hmm. This is critically important because when people read the Bible and look at object lessons or symbols, many people never ask the question, what's the reality to which it points? They stay stuck teaching a fantastical, meaning fantasy, understanding of things because they're staying stuck in symbolism and mystical types of explanations. Our goal as we look at these things is simply to move past the metaphor to the reality to which the metaphor points. And so when we look at Old Testament sanctuary service, not one element in the Old Testament sanctuary service is reality. Hmm. Every aspect of it is symbolic of something else. It all points to a larger reality. And if we don't properly understand the symbols, then we won't understand the meaning. I'll give you an example. Do you know the famous equation of Einstein? E equals MC squared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, E The equal sign, the M, the C, and the two, they're all symbols. They're just symbols, but they stand for something. But if we don't understand what the symbols stand for, then we might misunderstand. For instance, we could read those symbols, E equals MC squared, as Eve is eternal life equals taking mass at church twice a week. Okay, all right. (laughs) So if if we do that, we completely misunderstand that, in fact, energy equals the mass of matter times the speed of light squared. So the mass of matter times the speed of light squared tells you how much energy is in it. That's all that means. But you have to know what the symbols represent or else you can draw false conclusions. And this is important because if you look at a symbol, you may not understand what it means simply because you don't know what it means. But worse than that is when you attribute a false meaning to the symbol. So now you think you know what it means, but you actually don't. And this is one of the dangers of much of the Bible symbolism and explanations of things, many people have attached false meanings. So what is the purpose, in my understanding, of the Old Testament sanctuary system? There was nothing salvation-bearing in it. In other words, there's nothing in that system that would result in salvation. Hmm. It says in Scripture, Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, it says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, okay? Mm -hmm. That's Hebrews 9, 9 and 10, and 10, 3 and 4. And even in the Old Testament, if you read in Isaiah chapter 1, God says, what is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have more than enough burnt rams and fats of fattened animals. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless. Where he says better in Hosea 6, 6, I want your constant love, not 
your animal sacrifices. Mm. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. You see, the animal sacrifices were never required for salvation. We have lots of examples of people in Old Testament times being saved who never participated in the sanctuary service, Mm -hmm. never participated in this whole Levitical system. Jethro, for instance, uh, Moses' uncle, Naaman, the Shunammite woman whose child died in Elijah resurrected the child, Nebuchadnezzar, and many of other people who the scripture indicates are saved, but were never participants. Even the Magi that came from the East to give gifts to Jesus were not participants. So this system, first thing to know, and many Christians don't know this, they think in Old Testament, I've heard so many Christians around the world tell me, well, in Old Testament, you were saved by sacrificing animals, but now we don't sacrifice animals because we're saved by Jesus sacrificing his blood. They were not saved in the Old Testament by sacrificing animals. They were saved by Jesus' sacrifice as well. The animal sacrifices and the whole system was for another purpose. It was a teaching tool. It was an object lesson. It was designed to open their hearts and minds to the reality of what God was going to achieve. And so what I describe it as is a great stage play. It was a theater. They had a cool stage with intricate costumes and a very detailed script that they had to carry out in an annual cycle to repeat the plan of God to save human beings. That's what it was, a great stage, a great theater. Now, did they know that? I think some did, and it was certainly their privilege to know this. And if you read in Scripture, there is Old Testament Scripture, that I gave you some already, that indicated that they understood that this was not for salvation purposes. They understood that they were to be priests. They were to be priests not just to the people of Israel, but they were to bring all the peoples of the world to the knowledge of God through the teaching of this tool. This teaching tool was to be used yeah. to enlighten the world to the knowledge of God and his plan to save. So I think that that some who were really pursuing God did understand this, but many didn't. Many were caught up into the rituals and got lost into the symbols and began to attribute meaning to the symbols. And it really became paganized in a way, and paganized meaning yeah. that they began to believe that uh, sacrifice of animal blood was pleasing to God, mm-hmm. uh, as pagan sacrifices were. And this is one of the reasons why God had, for a while, the entire system torn down And for 70 years, nobody was doing the system, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these people were still being saved without participating in the system, again, showing that the system wasn't required for salvation, but the reality to which it pointed was required for salvation. Now, I may be doing an end run here, but are we guilty of sort of doing the same thing today? If I go to church, I'll be saved. If I listen to enough sermons, if I pray enough prayers, if I sacrifice enough of myself, I will have salvation? I think many people do that, yes. Uh, this work system of yeah. ritual or legal accountability or doing getting baptized in the right way or getting certain check marks on your list in a doctrinal uh, recitation, yes. many people see this. But the reality to which it all points is the restoration of godliness within us. As it says in Hebrews 8.10, I will write my law in your hearts and minds. And that's the reality to which it points. How do we know that Christ was the fulfillment of all of this. What kind of evidence do we have that after Christ, that wasn't necessary? The whole book of Hebrews points that out. I would suggest the evidence that God allowed the entire temple to be destroyed and never rebuilt is further evidence Mm -hmm. that it was wiped away. Mm -hmm. 
the New Testament writers, Paul talks about how there was not circumcision of the body that needs to be done, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. The fact that the New Testament writers did not participate in animal sacrifice anymore, again, that all of this was nailed to the cross, the, this Levitical system in Colossians was nailed to the cross and done away with. And so the, the New Testament is very clear that the whole theater was uh, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and this sacrificial system is not needed and, in fact, would probably cause a lot of confusion for people today. All right, make the uh, connection here for us. Let me let me give you something from the old system, and you tell me what the new system, how, how it happened happens in the new system. The whole idea of, of having uh, a sin in your life and you go and you sacrifice an animal. What do we do today instead? Rather than doing that, let's kind of understand what the symbols mean. Yeah. Okay. You have, uh, you've asked a question, they sacrifice sins on the head of an animal. Well, what does it mean? What was it to try and demonstrate? Well, the animals, I think most people understand this symbol without me having to tell them. The lamb represents the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which represents Jesus. Everybody understands that lamb is symbolic of Jesus. Yes, yes. Uh, it says in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. Well, what life? Not animal life. It's a symbolic life. Well, what's whose life is it symbolizing Jesus? And so it's the life of Jesus that is being symbolized by the blood. Okay? When the sinner would confess his sin on the head of the animal, what would the sinner do? Not the priest, but the sinner. The sinner would cut the circulation. Well, what is symbolized in that? If you remember the law of love we talked about in other of our episodes, the law of love is the principle of giving upon which life is based. And it's the other-centered circle of beneficence. And so what does the blood do? The blood simply circles, and it circles, and it circles. And as long as the blood keeps circling, there is life. But what happens when you sever the circle? You cut the arteries. Mm. Well, then the blood stops circling, and what happens? Death ensues. And so the symbolic lesson is very simple that sin severs love or breaks love. It's selfishness. And when you sever the principles of love, then you break the design of life, and death ensues. And so God was simply having them understand that the practice of sin is breaking how God actually built life to operate in our hearts and minds, and it will only result in ruin and death. So the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death, or sin when full-grown brings forth death. This is what, what is being taught here symbolically when the sinner confesses, but we don't have to actually die of this condition because we have a substitute. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, substitution, yeah. so that we might become the righteousness of God. But the reason for the substitution isn't penal legal. It's not to pay penalty. It's to fix the problem that leads to death so that we might become righteous. We might become well. And so they're confessing sin, and the sin is what severs the connection with life or the circle of beneficence or the law of love resulting in death. But the Lamb of God came, and he took upon himself this condition in order that, it says in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, that he might destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. And so that first step in that symbolic process was just demonstrating that sin leads to death, but then the application of the blood through the system, which is the life of Christ, shows that the application of the sinless life of Christ brings healing and restoration and life. Now, of course, it's very obvious in the sanctuary service in the desert that the people brought their sacrifices to the temple and to the priest. Where do we go now for that process? 
So the Bible in the New Testament tells us that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, mm. holy and pleasing to the Lord. So we present ourselves to God and we sacrifice ourselves, allow ourselves to be crucified, die to self, as it were. And then uh, where is the blood applied? The blood is applied to our hearts and minds. We receive the life of Christ. Now let's use metaphor. The daily priests represent the priesthood of believers. They were dressed in their white robes, representing the robe of Christ's righteousness, that we have new hearts and new characters. And so they're doing service, and they're ministering to the rest of the tribes of Israel. And the rest of the tribes of Israel represent the peoples of the world. So the entire world is represented now in the camp of Israel in this theater. We have people coming from the east, west, north, and south. They're being ministered to the Levites who camp in between the other uh, tribes so that they are the people of God going out to the world to take the truth of God, to bring them back into sanctuary or tabernacle with God where they can find healing and salvation for their souls. The high priest, of course, represents Jesus, but it's very interesting if you look at the Old Testament system, Moses represents Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Moses went into God's presence on the mountain, talked to God face to face, left God's presence and confronted the ruler of the enslaving power, set the people free from enslavement and built the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Jesus speaks to God face to face in heaven, leaves heaven, comes to earth, confronts the enslaving power of the earth, Satan, and then builds his sanctuary, Zechariah 6, 12, and 3, that he will branch out from his place and build his sanctuary upon the earth. The lamb represents Jesus during his 33 years on earth, and the high priest represents Jesus after his ascension and his work as our high priest in heaven today. And then the daily priests represent the priesthood of believers, as well as do the vessels that carried the blood. Paul is a vessel, a chosen vessel to me, and the blood represents, of course, the life of Christ that we're taking to people of the world. Jesus is the word made flesh, the words of truth. He's the source of truth, the way, the truth, and the life. When we partake of the flesh of Jesus, we're partaking of the word of Jesus, the truth. Those truths become building blocks in our minds, ideas, constructs, belief systems, which win us back to trust and dispel lies. We open the heart, and when we open our heart, then he pours his love into our heart, takes the life of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get new heart, right spirit. We get circumcision of the heart by the spirit. These metaphors are being carried out in reality, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's partaking the blood. My, my, there is much more to come on this topic. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together.